Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English, David Emmett and Neil Morrison today just guiding everyone through the silly season rumours that are running amok around the MotoGP paddock. Dave, it's been a busy week for everyone in the media, but uh, lots of stories for us to touch on during this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything seems to be all sort of nice and calm and quiet. And we were, uh, everything was just sort of rolling along uh, and nobody was getting excited. Then all of a sudden this whole uh, Polis Bargaro to... Uh, to Repsol Honda story kicked off and um, it's all been a bit hectic since then. Yeah, Neil, a bit of normality returning to Spain. La Liga's back this week and uh, everyone's saying that Spanish riders are going to take over every season the MotoGP paddock. But uh, what's your take on the rumours that we're hearing? Uh, yeah, I'm just a, a little bit relieved, to be honest, because I think there was a, a danger for some months there that uh, the silly season for 2021 was going to fizzle out really before it started. We had Yamaha's confirming early, then we had Suzuki confirming both their riders. Um, and... Yeah, only a couple of weeks ago we were talking on this podcast and uh, predicting that things were probably going to remain as they were at uh, Repsol Honda. Um, and, uh, well, with uh, Paul Spargro's uh, imminent move, um, you know, we do have a bit of drama on that front. So, uh, yeah, we were right all along, Stephen, building this silly season up. <laughs> well, that's that's the one thing, isn't it? The silly season, it's that time of year whenever basically any rumour can get legs. And Dave, this Paulus Bagaro rumour to Repsol Honda has certainly grown a lot of legs over the course of very short space of time. Literally, within 24 hours, it went from being something that was being rumoured to being something that was taken for granted, taken as a fact. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you sent me a very entertaining piece about um, um, brighter managers and how they actually use the media to get uh, uh, to, to launch rumours uh, in an attempt to uh, strengthen their negotiating position. Um, and even that got overtaken by reality, really. What happened was that at first there were sort of one or two rumours that uh, Pole might be going to uh, to Repsol Honda, and then more and more journalists started checking within with their own sources, and um, each of those sources started to confirm it. So it is genuinely looking like it's going to happen. Uh, I don't think the it, I don't think it's signed, sealed, and delivered just yet, um, but um, it's as you know good as signed off. Everyone is working towards the same uh, the, the same objective. Uh, I mean, I. I have, uh, and I'm sure Neil is the same. Uh, sort of people on both sides, uh, on both the KTM and the uh, and the Honda side, seem to be implying that uh, this is going to happen. So I think it's, it, I would say it's about a 99 percent certainty right now. Neil, if it is something that does happen, what's your take on the move? Because obviously. Paul has shown that he's a really good MotoGP rider with KTM. He hasn't had the bike underneath him to be able to win races, but moving to Repsol Honda is a big step up. It is. It's a huge step up for Paul um, because while he's done a, a pretty fantastic job at KTM over the past four seasons, well, three seasons more or less, uh, bringing that bike to you know, consistent, more or less a consistent top 10 finisher for most of last year, occasional top six finisher. When the conditions are right, he's proved that he can put it on the podium. Uh, you know, that's, uh, aiming for that is obviously quite different to being expected to win races every weekend, especially if your teammate is uh, going to continue his uh, quite astonishing record of finishing either first or second everywhere. Um, so it's a, it's a big move for Paul, but um, I think it's, 
it's quite uh, yeah, it's, it's very very interesting because I thought Paul was always a fantastic rider in the in the junior classes. I really expected him to be a MotoGP race winner by now, a multiple MotoGP race winner. If I'm honest, uh, the Yamaha thing never worked out, but we can see from his riding at KTM that um, the the more aggressive and demanding a bike is, the, the better kind of fit it is for Paul. And the Honda certainly is that. So if you're thinking about riding styles, I think uh, it's a good fit. Um, and then there's also the, the backstory with Marquez. I mean, these are two guys that uh, used to fight each other uh, in the Junior Catalan Championships all the way through the uh, 125s, Moto2 categories. And, uh, you know, there was some ferocious dueling in that time. Um, so it's going to be quite interesting to see how that dynamic plays out inside the garage as well. Dave, and uh, Neil said there that it's a big step up to go to the Repsol Honda for Paul, but it's a big step by HRC to bring Paul in and replace Alex Marquez potentially. Yeah, I mean, uh, quite honestly, that's the part that I don't understand. Um, I mean, right now, uh, if you as a manufacturer want to win a championship, a MotoGP title, um, then your best bet is to just give Mark Marquez whatever he wants. If Mark Marquez says, you know, he wants you to wear a pink tutu while you're standing in the pits watching him, then uh, you ask him what size pink tutu you want and how frilly it's got to be. You don't ask, you know, you don't, you, you don't question what he wants because he's proven, you know, six times out of seven and arguably the one time that he didn't win the championship was down to Honda uh, uh, rather than uh, uh, down to Marquez. Um yeah, he's the nearest thing they've got a guarantee. So I, ju I don't really understand why they would, uh, why they would upset him by first signing his brother and then signing someone else to replace his brother uh, before his brother even had a chance to prove that he deserved the ride. Neil, is this just a move by HRC just to prove that they're not cross-dressers in Japan and that uh, they... <laughs> that they are the ones that make the decisions for Repsol Honda and they won't be driven to any sort of cross-dressing by Marquez and his management. <laughs> I was just about to say that explains why Dave was uh, showing up in those rather fetching little numbers in pit lane last year. Uh, it must have been Marquez's fault. Um, yeah, I would... Um, I mean, you look at Alex Marquez's performances during preseason. I don't think they were they were bad by any stretch of the imagination. I think there was actually quite a few positive tests in there. Um, but when you come away from uh, Sepang and from the Qatar test, he was uh, languishing around twentieth position or thereabouts. Um, I think with Paul Spargaro, you could arguably be aiming for podiums uh, in that first season. Uh, certainly top six finishes you would imagine and Alex is obviously going to take a bit more time to get up there um, perhaps after the difficulties of Jorge Lorenzo's season in 2019 when they weren't even scoring points a lot of the time um, maybe Honda just feels that hey we need to get two guys back up fighting for podiums together um, as soon as possible um, however as David mentioned that could come at the expense of uh, upsetting their number one rider and Dave, when you look at Paul and, and Alex and compare the two of them, obviously both of them Moto2 World Champions. Alex also winning a Moto3 World Championship. He's stepping up to the MotoGP class. He would have been 23 when the Qatar Grand Prix would have taken place, the same age that Paul was when Paul moved up to the Premier class. 
there's a lot of similarities there. And obviously, Paul is another couple of years further along. So in terms of if this was an outright rider decision, who you expect to be faster next year, you'd go with Paul. But there's a lot more that goes into these decisions than just what happens on track. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as uh, as Neil said, there is the, the, the question of last year. I mean, last year, uh, Repsol Honda won the Triple Crown uh, Manufacturers uh, Team and uh, and Riders Championship. But I mean, Mark Marquez pretty much won that single handedly. I think um, uh, I can't remember exactly how many points uh, it was that. Uh, Jorge Lorenzo contributed, but it was, you know, 23, 24, something like that. It was not a particularly huge amount. Um, and so, yeah, if Honda also wants to win the Manufacturers Championship, which really matters to them, um, then they want uh, then they want to guarantee. Perhaps also um, the fact that uh, Mark Marquez has had shoulder on his uh, su- surgery on his shoulders, um, in consecutive years, first his uh, first his left and then his right, I think um, uh, that might also be a little bit of a concern. So you want to have some kind of an insurance for if someone is um, uh, is uh, you know is injured. Danny Pedrosa in his last year on the Repsol uh, didn't have a fantastic season as the the, the tyres seemed to move away from uh, from Pedrosa. Uh, so yeah, maybe they just want someone who can be competitive off the bat because, I mean, Alex Marquez, um, he, I mean, he seems to certainly seems to make make progress through testing, but uh, he'd be much better off in a uh, in a satellite team in LCR rather than on a uh, than on the factory team in the spotlights, especially next to his brother who is once again going to dominate. Yeah, Neil, last week on the show, we talked about what could potentially derail Marquez. Is it going to be time or is it going to be injuries? Is it going to be a rival? And as Dave said there, Honda could well just be looking for that insurance policy in case injury is the issue. Yep, they could be. They could also be looking at um, Paul's uh, job as a development rider uh, for KTM because he's basically taken the RC16 from a completely new package to... Well, what, what we said earlier, a bike that's capable of uh, top six finishes on its day. Um, and we do know that Alberto Puig, team manager of Repsol Honda, is good friends with uh, Mike Leitner, team manager of the, uh, the Red Bull KTM team. We often see Puig eaten with Leitner in Red Bull hospitality whenever we were uh, going to races uh, in 2019. Even before then, those guys obviously have a close relationship and uh, confer among one another. Um, and it could be that, uh, well, look at the situation Honda was in in Qatar uh, back in uh, the end of February, early March. I mean, it was in kind of trouble. And it was only the fact that they had Marquez, who's basically able to ride around anything, that uh, we still thought, OK, he's still in with a shot of winning races, maybe even winning the first race. But if you looked at Cal Crutzlow or Alex Marquez, I mean, the 2020 bike certainly is no big improvement on what they had last year. Um so perhaps Paul's ability to develop was another factor that came into play, another experienced MotoGP name that could provide useful feedback alongside Crutchlow, alongside Marquez, uh, as opposed to Alex, who obviously is a, is a clean slate in terms of MotoGP experience. Yeah, and before we get on to the possible ramifications and what it would mean for Alex, Dave, I've got one last question for you about the Mark Marquez situation. Obviously, you posted the stories in that 
this is likely in your eyes to lead to the end of their relationship together and uh, Wayne Gardner took offence to this and uh, obviously Gardner would have a very good insight into what it's like for a top tier rider a world champion to then have another very good rider come in to be his teammate whether you look at Gardner's experiences with McDoon or more likely with Eddie Lawson these are the kind of things that have a big impact on a rider's mentality and to see your team basically try and hedge their bets is obviously going to be hard for any rider to deal with for Mark to see the team potentially hedge their bets in terms of the future and also to get rid of his brother that's obviously going to have a massive impact yeah, I mean, exactly that. It's getting rid of his brother, even if, I mean, it it seems likely that um, uh, Honda will probably replace uh, Taka Nakagami, uh, put um, uh, Alex Mark, or well, put it this way, if I was Honda, I would replace Taka, uh, Taka Nakagami uh, with uh, Alex Marquez at LCR. Uh, they, uh, Dorna, want a British rider in Cal Crutchlow, and Cal Crutchlow's been, you know, he's won races. He can, He's capable of of scoring a podium um, so you would put Alex in LCR Honda so it's not as if he's been sort of sacked completely by Honda but he hasn't been given a chance to show what he's capable of and I think as uh, that would be the thing which I would take offence as if I was Mark Marquez and if you look back over the history of um, riders uh, as I wrote in my story if you look at the back of the history of riders who've left they've now left because they wanted to prove themselves on another bike and all the rest of the uh, um, you know the things which fans talk about it's always been because they've felt slighted they've felt upset they've felt that the factories have disrespected them as uh, as the youth like to say um Rossi left because Honda wasn't giving him the respect he, he, uh, uh, he felt he deserved. Then he left Yamaha because they signed uh, Lorenzo, even when they did, he, he even though he didn't want them to sign Lorenzo. Um, uh, Stoner left Ducati because Ducati weren't, he felt Ducati weren't listening to him and they, tra they treated him badly when he was ill. Um, uh, Lorenzo left Yamaha because, basically because they didn't celebrate his 2015 title uh, because the controversy which had uh, sort of surrounded that uh, uh, that whole championship. Uh, this is exactly why people leave. People leave for reasons of pride rather than anything else. They, they, their pride has been dented and so they think, well, so do you. And even though uh, Mark has a four-year contract, um, there are always, always get-out clauses in contracts. There are always ways of getting out. Yeah, and before, and David, you've mentioned there about Nakagami and potentially that being a landing spot. And before we move on to talk about potentially what could happen at LCR, Neil, I just want to ask you about those get-out clauses that Dave's mentioning. Obviously, if you're KTM and you've spent all this money in MotoGP or you're Ducati and you've spent all this money in MotoGP, surely you'd be willing to say, let's just write a big check and let's just try and get Marquez out of his contract. He's the closest thing you have to guaranteeing success in MotoGP and going out and paying however many millions it is, however many tens of millions it is to get Marquez out of his contract, surely that's an investment that's worth making for those manufacturers. It is, but in the current economic climate, I mean, uh, I can't say that Ducati or KTM, uh, relatively small manufacturers when compared to Honda, you can't really say that uh, they're going to be in a position to outdo Marquez's contract of what he was reportedly or what he is reportedly earning at the moment with Honda which is in the regions of what 20 21 million a year um perhaps even going to rise next year um 
Yeah, it's uh, it's really hard to see in the in the current post COVID nineteen landscape uh, of a motorcycle manufacturer, European one, being able to match that or in any way get close to it. Um, so, I, yeah, you can't imagine Marquez leaving without having to take some kind of pay cut. Well, on the other side of that, people are still smoking. People are still drinking energy drinks. So while Ducati or KTM may not be too willing to fork up the money, there's a there's a big mission win now Ooh. sitting in the background there. And uh, if you want to win now, you've got to make sure you've got Marquez. If you're Red Bull, you've already got your ties with Marquez. You've already got a long-standing history with him. So... Red Bull have always shown they're not afraid of flashing the cash. Formula One is going to have a budget cap in the near future. So suddenly, Red Bull and their motorsport arm has a little bit more budget than they were expecting. Yep, it's possible. It is possible, Steve. Um, but yeah, that's the only way you can see this happening. When you hear um, about the scrimping and the saving that Ducati are having to do to, for example, sign Andrea De Vizioso this year, which we're going to come on to, uh, or even um, after forking out 12 million euros uh, or in the region of 12 million euros for Jorge Lorenzo in 2017 and 18. They were then having to make cutbacks in other departments uh, and in future years after that outlay. So yeah, it probably would take uh, Mr. Morris to open his checkbook and uh, we have a blank check in Marquez's direction to do that. But um, yeah, remains to be seen whether that will happen. Yeah, I mean, the, to me, Ducati is the most interesting one here because, um, I mean, obviously it would be bankrolled by Philip Morris, uh, but Philip Morris is also, they've already had their uh, fingers burnt first with Valentino Rossi and then with Jorge Lorenzo. And even though Lorenzo looked like, um, uh, well, immediately after he got sacked basically by uh, um, uh, by Claudio Domenicali, he then went and showed that he was actually worth every penny of the uh, money which uh, uh, which Philip Morris had actually spent on him. I'm fairly sure that um, uh, Ducati could quite easily go to uh, Philip Morris and say, you know, listen, mate, it's Mark Marquez. Um, the, the, I, I don't think there's any need. The, the, I don't think there's any reason to doubt he wouldn't be successful uh, on the Ducati. It might take him a few races, and I, I think uh, I don't think he would be like um, uh, Valentino Rossi because the bike is much better. Um, it's even better than uh, than it was when Jorge Lorenzo was there. So uh, yeah, I think there's a there's, there is every reason to expect that if he jumped on the uh, uh, if he jumped on the on the Ducati, he would be capable of winning. And if he jumped on the KTM, uh, he would certainly be capable of getting very very close to winning because the KTM, well, the RC16 is not quite a knockoff Honda, but uh, it's uh, very very close. The uh, the um, the resemblance is remarkable. And Neil, just uh, in line with that, obviously over the course of the last couple of years, we've seen it time and time again, and an awful lot more in recent years just because the competition's so close in MotoGP. But um, we've seen that that uh, mesh that you have with the bike, the riding style and uh, what the bike needs, that's become more and more important over the course of the last few years. We've seen it with Lorenzo, Zarco, whoever you want to look at. And we're seeing more and more impatience with manufacturers to try and get those results. So it is basically 
a storm that's developed in recent years just to try and force everyone to be absolutely at the sharp end on the limit right from the outset and it's at a time when testing is more and more restricted as well it's, it's tough for riders to change teams yeah exactly and i think uh yeah manufacturers as you said steve will have looked at the uh the examples of lorenzo and zarco in previous years and realized that uh okay someone with a, a super smooth riding style uh that's going to take at least half a season maybe a full season for them to get adapted to a more aggressive bike paul espargaro knows this only too well of course because he spent what four years on a yamaha m1 without ever really being able to get to a sensationally good level it was uh it was always fifth place, fourth place, I think maybe, uh, was Paul's best result with uh, the Tech 3 Yamaha. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, I think it's now fundamental, unless you're looking at um, perhaps a, another worldly talent like Marquez uh, or Valentino Rossi, for example, or maybe even Jorge Lorenzo. I think it's a, a pretty fundamental part of the decision-making process uh, to make sure the rider's riding style uh, will fit and sorry, just to add one other thing, Stevie, about uh, while we're on the topic of Paul. Um, I remember last year, around this time last year, doing an interview with him. Um, and the final part of the interview, we were doing some, you know, lighthearted questions. One of the lighthearted questions I asked him was, if, uh, if you could race any rider in the history of the sport on any machine that you could choose, who would you race and on what bike would you do it? And Paul's answer straight away was, I'd race Marquez on his factory Honda. And that was uh, this time last year. So um, it's clear that not just from junior championships and back in the Catalan mini bike series that they used to race each other in, it's clear that Paul has always had his eyes on Marquez and has always had it in his head that he wants to test himself against Marquez on the same machinery um, because they never quite managed that in Moto Sorry, Monty Five. They never quite managed that in Moto Two, and uh, well, that's obviously been um, a pretty important part of this uh, all happening. Paul wanting to go and prove himself on the same equipment against the very best. Yeah, and that's a, a fairly common theme for most riders as well, Dave. You tend to see that they basically want to test themselves against the best if they've got that inner confidence. And uh, I've had that discussion a few times with Alex Lowe since he moved to Kawasaki, just trying to find out his reasoning behind it. He wants to test himself against Johnny Ray. He wants to see where he stacks up. So that at the end of your career, you don't have those doubts. You don't have those questions of, oh, I wonder where I actually stand in the pecking order. For Paul, if he moves to Repsol Honda, he's able to say definitively, okay, I had X amount of years beside Marquez, and this is why he's this is why he's good and this is what I do well and these were the races I beat him these are the races I got beaten and he's able to actually give himself the answers yeah exactly I mean uh, in fact a long time ago I was interviewing Alasia Spargo when he was on a CRT bike and Alasia was saying I just want a chance to race on the same bike as um, uh, as the rest to, to show that I, that I belong there, that I can actually be competitive. And I think on the Suzuki and uh, to an extent, even on the Aprilia, he's, he's shown that he actually did deserve that. But um, for Paul, yeah, Paul wants to know. Paul really wants to know. Paul really believes that he can be, uh, at least take the fight to Mark Marquez and beat him um, as long as he's fighting with the same tools. So it's obvious that he would go to, um, uh, to Repsol Honda. I think that he was interviewed by the Spanish mag, I think Motociclismo, a couple weeks ago uh, a few weeks before this all kicked off and he said you know there's only two re there's only two bikes that i'd go to if i was going to leave um 
the KTM, and that is for the Repsol Honda or for the factory Ducati, because they're the only bikes um, that he thinks is are actually capable of, of beating them. And also, we suit his style, because he's a very, very aggressive style. He hates, he absolutely hates trying to be smooth. That was why he hated the Yamaha. It was, it's almost like he's the diametrical opposite of, um, of Jorge Lorenzo. Lorenzo was trying to be, you know, was incredibly capable of being uh, smooth and incredibly fast when he's smooth. Whereas Paulus Bargo just wants to, you know, beat and whip the bike into um, uh, into sub- submission. His um, uh, crew chief, uh, uh, Paul Trevathan, said to me, um, um, he hated the fact, or he hated it when he was, when he had to ride like a pussy, he said. When he had to ride, gently and be smooth and be careful he wants to be out there you know just beating the thing into submission so uh, yeah I, I would actually really like to see Polis Bagaro on uh, on the Repsol Honda uh, and in fact uh, Polis Bagaro is the reason that Emilio El Zamora still won't speak to me uh, be- <laughs> because after the uh, uh, well at, at the press conference after the Barcelona 2012 I think Paul Espargaro versus uh, Mark Marquez um Mark uh, I asked that was when Marquez uh, basically breaks into Paul Espargaro and pushed him wide um I asked him um, and and, and Espargaro crashed I asked Mark are you having problems with your vision still? Because this was a year after his um, uh, after a surgery on his eyes, or a few months after his surgery on his eyes. And uh, Alzamora, Mark gave a really good answer. Said, "No, no, no, everything's fine. It's just that you know that's that's that particular position in that corner." And Emilio uh, Alzamora got up and shouted at me that I was a bad journalist for asking that sort of a question. So um, yeah, he hasn't uh, he hasn't taken very kindly to me. Emilio knows, David. Emilio knows. No, it's funny that you should bring that up because um, I, I forget when it was. It was sometime last year that race was being replayed. Um, it was either somewhere in the paddock or it might have been on Spanish TV. Anyway, I remember re-watching it because um, I was actually at, uh, at Barcelona that day as a spectator um, and I was re-watching the race. And I had forgotten just how much bad blood there was between Paul and Mark that year. If you think back to earlier in 2012, that race at Estoril, I mean, they were knocking absolute lumps out of each other in the last lap. Uh, Mark eventually won. And uh, wasn't there, wasn't there, wasn't Mark um, going to possibly be deducted points for that, uh, that spill in Catalonia? And that was uh, contested and then appealed um, as they went forward. So I mean that was a that was a pretty hostile rivalry that year between the two, um, and uh, yeah, I'm quite excited to see how that uh, how that will uh, play its part whenever they're both in uh, Repsol colours. Yeah, and if you are sitting at home wondering what to do um, uh, while we wait for the return of racing, watch the 2012 Moto2 season where we had Espargaro versus Marquez and Iannone and just general mayhem. Yeah, Luti, Redding, yeah, it was a great season. Yeah, that, uh, that 2012 season was incredible for Moto2 as well because you had Iannone, Luti, Scott Redding was getting podiums and obviously the next year it was Redding against Espargaro for the championship and it really was a case of in that era of Moto2 that was as good as it got and uh, there was some great battles all the way through that season so we've talked a lot about Paul Espargaro and Mark Marquez let's move on to talk about the impact this could have on Alex Marquez guys we've already said that there's a good chance that he could be moved to the LCR team obviously that would placate Mark by keeping uh, 
his brother on the same bike. But if he was to move to LCR, Dave, you've already said that Nakagami is likely to be the fall guy. Nakagami hasn't really lived up to too much over the course of his MotoGP career. He's had some good results. He's had some bad results. He's just been pretty much just another guy in that midfield scrap. He's had, I think, half a dozen top 10 finishes and he's scored points, but we haven't really seen too many flashes from him. And if you're Honda and your choice is between somehow keeping Mark Marquez happy and a Japanese rider, Neil, in all likelihood, you're going to make the decision to move Alex across to LCR. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and I think, um, you know, Honda isn't stupid. Uh, it will... I'm sure try and find a space for Mark, Alex Marquez because to get rid of him completely, I mean, firstly, it's it's wildly unfair because Alex hasn't even raced um, and they're, they're basically we cast him out. And to do that, I think, would really anger Mark. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure if I share David's view that Mark would be really pissed off if Alex got moved from Repsol to LCR, but if, if they just cast him aside completely from Honda, then yeah, for sure, there's fair grounds for for Alex. Sorry for Mark getting uh, getting pretty upset by that, um, but yeah, I mean it makes sense. Um, it probably would have made sense for Alex to go there at the end of last year. We know that the circumstances of him getting the Repsol ride were just because Lorenzo had decided to retire prematurely. Um, so uh, yeah, I think Alex alongside Cal is uh, is a pretty good. Um, is a pretty good combination for LCR. Um, and you would imagine that Alex would probably be demanding that he's on the same equipment as Cal uh, if he does go there, uh, which would be a step up from what Taka Nakagami is using. Um, so, uh, yeah, and Taka, you know, I think Taka's actually been doing all right, Steve, before his shoulder injury last year. You know, he had a, a fifth place at Magello. He had a couple of top sixes elsewhere. Um, he was definitely building towards something. But, um, yeah, unless you're winning races or on the podium consistently, then... Uh, your job's never going to be that safe. Yeah, and I think at 27, 28 years of age for Nakagami, it is one of those situations where it gets harder and harder to see where you're going to make that big step forward if you're Honda. And Dave, there's a lot of good young Japanese riders coming through that maybe Honda take the approach that, you know, it's more important to have a Japanese rider in a couple of years' time rather than here and now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, both Dorna and Honda want a Japanese rider um, in MotoGP. Uh, Honda more than uh, Dorna, perhaps. Um, but yeah, we have, I mean, you know, Nagashima did a great job in uh, in Qatar earlier this year. He's shown flashes. Uh, but in Moto3, I mean, the, the just the, the depth of talents, Suzuki, uh, Ogura, um pfft. There's a couple more whose names uh, escape me at the moment because I'm old and senile. Sasaki. Yeah, ex <laughs> exactly, Sasaki. Um, there, 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 there's so many of these, these young Japanese riders that look like they're going to make it. And so you could quite easily slip uh, Alex Marquez into LCR Honda um, just for a year, uh, wait for Cal to retire because it looks like Cal Crutchlow will retire um, not the end of this year, which he was saying, but probably at the end of next year. Um, so that frees up a space to keep uh, Alex Marquez and to put um, uh, a Honda rider or a Japanese rider in there in uh, 2022. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's fairly simple. It's a shame about uh, uh, Takanakagami. Nakagami's not been, uh, he's not been terrible. He's been 
perfectly good. He's a perfectly serviceable MotoGP rider, which makes him one of the very best riders in the world. But he's not going to win a championship. He's not going to win a race, barring something exceptional. Um, he might get the occasional podium. Uh, Honda really want a competitive Japanese rider, and that is a th- that is a little way off. Yeah, and I think for someone like Nakagami, as much as he'd want to stay in MotoGP, there's a lot to be said for HRC to move him across to World Superbikes as well. And uh, they've obviously got Takahashi in World SBK this year, and uh, they could easily expand that outfit over the course of the next year. And maybe that's an outlet then to keep Nakagami on your books and to give him a a good chance of winning races and uh, being able to put himself into being a title contender. So Neil, when you look at uh, the other manufacturers and the knock-on impact of if Paulus Bagaro goes to Repsol Honda, obviously the KTM seat then becomes the next big talking point. And uh, there's a lot of riders that would be a good fit for KTM. But obviously the one rider that's been talked about a lot is Davizioso. He's got a long-standing relationship with Red Bull. He's disgruntled with... uh, Ducati in terms of the money that he's being offered, the relationship he has with some key people at Ducati's obviously been quite frayed over the course of the last couple of years and uh, he would certainly be a rider willing to look to pastures new but it wouldn't be a move without risk for him. He's obviously won a lot of races with Ducati, he's been able to be a title contender with Ducati and uh, he may not be able to be that rider once he switches to KTM. You have to spend a bit of time to adapt to the bike. You have to build yourself up with a new bike. And uh, if Dovi was to move, there's no guarantee that he's going to be able to bring forward KTM like he has done with Ducati over the last four or five years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, obviously, um, his relationship with everyone in Ducati isn't perfect. However, uh, I think on his side of the garage, um, he's forged a pretty close relationship with his uh, crew chief, Alberto Girabola, um, numerous others uh, of his technicians. Um, you know, Davizioso is 34 now, and going to KTM would be a pretty big leap uh, at this stage of the career. I can't see Davizioso signing another contract beyond the one that is possibly about to be signed. Um, so for his last contract to go and uh, take a risk, on KTM at such a late stage in his career. I mean, it is a, it's a huge risk um, and one that honestly I can't really see happening. Um, and if you look at KTM, um, the profile of rider that they have been chasing and looking for has been young riders that have been with KTM for some time, riders that might have even been with KTM right the way through the Grand Prix classes. Um, I think KTM would perhaps be more likely to promote from within than go searching for a big name replacement. Yeah, and Dave, obviously someone like Miguel Oliveira would be a a prime candidate for that, a guy that's contended for world championships in the smaller classes, did a very good job last year as well with the Tech KTM, and uh, you could easily see him and Brad Binder being teammates on the factory bike. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the... Uh, in a normal world, the uh, replacing Paul Spargo would be simple because what you do is you take Miguel Oliveira, move him up to the factory team alongside Brad Binder. They've been teammates for years uh, throughout uh, throughout the classes, and then you take Jorge Martin and put him in Tech Three. But unfortunately, it looks like Jorge Martinez signed for Pramac Ducati, so that makes things a lot more complicated. Um, uh, so yeah, um, because they can't do that. 
uh, or they might not be able to do that, it then becomes a question of who do you replace him with? You know, who do you replace? Um, uh, do you move Oliveira up and uh, take a chance on a young rider to stick in Tech Three, uh, or do you take or uh, do you try to pinch a an experienced rider from from someone else? I don't think Dovizioso leaves because Dovizioso, as Neil said, you know, he's going to be thirty five next year. Takes six months to a year to actually adapt to a new bike uh, by the time he'd be competitive and his second year of a, of a hypothetical contract would be 36 um he suits the ducati ducati need him just as much as he needs ducati really uh they're they're completely melded so i think i think he stays but yeah who who else do you put on the bike yeah, I mean, um, the Martin thing is interesting because obviously there were some stories about him going to Pramac Ducati last week. Um, yet any comments that I've read from Ducati personnel are saying that uh, KTM are pretty intent on keeping him. So it's uh, it's a tough one to call, really. Um, and obviously we're probably going to have to wait until Davizioso signs because once he signs, then a few other places are going to be filled up quite soon. Um, but yeah, Reading between the lines, I wouldn't say that the, the Martin to Pramac thing is, is done by any stretch. Um, and, I mean, he's a, he's a seriously talented rider. I don't know whether he's done enough in Moto2 to justify a place in GP already, but perhaps he would have done in normal circumstances and we had had seven or eight races by now. Um, but, yeah, he's certainly going to be in demand. He would certainly say he's going to be a MotoGP rider next year, but whether it's, it's Ducati or KTM seems to, to remain open. Yeah, and for me, I think the other riders that I'd be thinking in terms of for the second seat at uh, Tech 12, like let's say Martin does go to Ducati. Let's say that's something that happens and you take him off the table. Suddenly for that second seat, obviously Lekwona is there at the moment and we'll wait and see how he does. But uh, maybe someone like a Navarro or a Fabio Di Giantonio, there's riders that you could see being worth taking a chance on what's effectively your fourth seat. If they click with the bike, suddenly they become a really valuable commodity to have. And when you look at the Moto2 grid, there isn't really that many riders that you that jump out at you as and you think, you know what, that's a Moto2, that's a Moto2 rider that can easily make the step up to MotoGP and make a big impact. If you look back over the last few years, Neil, Bagnaia was one of those riders, Frankie Morbidelli was one of those riders. There isn't really anyone on the basis of last year that you think could make that kind of massive step now a lot of that as well Neil probably comes down to the fact that last year was the first year with the Triumph and it wasn't quite what we had seen where a lot of riders could do one year in Moto2 and really learn all the lessons they needed to learn Martin's a good example of that by the time we got to the flyaways at the end of the year he was a very different rider than he had been during the European season yeah yeah no absolutely um but yeah, I think uh, any any rider that you sign for Moto Two for Moto GP in two thousand and twenty one is going to be a yeah a big a big step into the unknown, um, and you're probably going off um, stories that you've heard from technicians or, or crew chiefs uh, in the past about how impressive they were in Moto Three or Moto Two. Um, so so yeah, you're probably going to be taking a punt if Martin does go to to Pramac. Then yeah, you're probably going to be taking a, a punt on on something of a, an unknown in Moto2 terms. 
Yeah, there's there's also the difference between filling the second seat in the factory team and filling the second seat in uh, the Tech 3 team. So if you move Oliveira up, who has a year of experience on the KTM, um, because you, you need someone with it, you need an experienced rider there. Whether uh, Oliveira has the experience to, uh, you know, actually lead development and, and all the rest of it is, is another question. Um, but... In the factory team, you need a an experienced rider. In the uh, uh, in the Tech Three team, which is very much now KTM's junior team, in the same way that Pramac uh, is to factory Ducati, you can afford to take a punt on uh, someone in. Um, it, it, well, you could take take a punt on someone in Moto to in Moto to. You could, I mean, you could even take a really risky choice or a much more risky choice uh you could go for a joe roberts you could go for maybe a remy gardner um uh, obviously lorenzo balasari there's been a lot of talk about uh, about balasari as well uh maybe even aaron canet canet seems to have really adapted quickly um so there's there's a few names in there which are Quite interesting, um, uh, given the uh, given the options. Oh, and Navarro, I think obviously to, to me, uh, Jorge Navarro is probably the main rider that you would expect to make the step up. Yep, yep, that's uh, that's fair, Dave. But then on the other hand, you could also say that Lecon has been a massive a massive gamble, um, and probably like the the fourth or fifth name on the on KTM's list to fill um, the the seat vacated by. Well, what was supposed to be Brad Binder um, this year? Yeah, I mean, uh, taking another risk on another rider. But then, you know, those some of those names you listed, you would say they're probably pretty decent bets to be good MotoGP riders in the future. So, yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, and for me, obviously, I have a very biased viewpoint on this coming from the Superbike paddock. But when you look at someone like Top Rack Razgadioglu, he's twenty three, he's Red Bull backed, he'll have had three years of superbike experience, big bike experience, he'd certainly be a rider that you could afford to take a risk on for, as you said, David, what's effectively the fourth seat within your factory. And for someone like Toprak, it's good to have a Turkish rider. It's, you know, it's an important market where you could look to move into as well. So he could be a rider where if, when World Superbikes gets back in action, if he has another couple of good weekends and, you know, the next round is going to be in Hareth in all likelihood, in high temperatures, he's going to look good around that track. The Yamaha always goes well there. Some of the other bikes don't work as well in the high temps. So suddenly, someone like Toprak could get quite a bit of momentum behind them. And we already know that Red Bull like him enough that uh, they've kept him on as a as a Red Bull rider when everyone within Yamaha across the world has to be a monster rider. So clearly, there would be some back in there for someone like Toprak, Dave. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of the more interesting options, I think, um, uh, especially in in as you say that that fourth seat, the 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 the, the Tech Three seat. Um, uh, again, the only question mark is what do KTM want in their factory seat? They need some experience there. Uh, the problem is 
um, there isn't really an awful lot of experience there. I think there has been talk of maybe Petrucci going there, which would certainly be an interesting option because it would give. Um, uh, the, the, this is someone who's, who's ridden Ducatis, um, um, ridden the factory Ducati, and has plenty of uh, of input. And it would definitely be good, I think, to have someone come across from a bike other than uh, uh, other than a Yamaha uh, to be able to tell them, okay, this is what the bike does. Yeah, and Dave, I was going to move on to talk about what happens with someone like Petrucci, because obviously we've mentioned that Davi could be an option for KTM. I, d- I think all three of us kind of look at it quite objectively and think that he could be in play, but it would be a risk that you know is, is hard to see paying off immediately for the money that you'd have to invest in Davi. So someone like Petrucci, who, like, let's be honest, you're always going to be able to get Danilo Petrucci for a lot cheaper than a lot of other riders, he would be appealing. He's got a lot of experience in Grand Prix. He's a Grand Prix winner, so he knows what it takes to get to the front. He knows what it takes to have that right feeling with a bike, Neil. And you could see how the style from a Ducati could translate to a KTM for someone like Petrucci. And he obviously wants to stay in MotoGP. So he could certainly be an option for them. Yeah, yeah, he certainly could. He's on the market um, and he's made it known uh, in several interviews over the past two weeks that uh, he won't be staying with <coughs> with uh, Ducati in MotoGP. Um, I was listening to some of his comments that he made to uh, the MotoGP Roundtable podcast um, and, uh, yeah, certainly give the impression that he's, uh, well, pretty pretty hurt, really, by uh, his treatment uh, by Ducati. He was saying even Austin last year whenever Jack Miller had uh, scored his first podium of the season. That was, what, the third race of 2019. Then uh, talk was emerging that Miller was going to step up and replace Petrucci this year. So he said that uh, he's just been under a constant blanket of of pressure and uncertainty since he joined. And, uh, well, yeah, he won't be at Ducati next year, that's for sure. But, um, yeah, I guess the chances of Petrucci or the options that he has are somewhere between Aprilia and KTM. Again, I think... I think KTM are more likely to to look within to replace Paulus Bargaro than um, than go for someone like Petrucci because you could argue that um, well Brad Binder in two years or three years of careful nurturing and development um, will be maybe at a at a higher level and Petrucci's been operating that recently. Um, yeah, it's it's tough to know. I think Aprilia uh, he's had links with that factory in the past. I think that seems a more likely fit for for Danilo. Yeah, Neil, obviously you mentioned it there that someone like Binder will have a higher ceiling than uh, someone like Petrucci potentially. I think the one thing for Danilo is that his floor is very high in terms of the risk factor you have, David, with hiring someone like Petrucci is always going to be quite low. He's going to be able to do a good job. I think everyone within the MotoGP paddock has a huge amount of respect for the fact that Petrucci leaves absolutely everything out there. He's very committed to the job at hand, but for KTM maybe there are better options. But what about for Aprilia? Because obviously, Alessia Spagaro, he's going to be confirmed as remaining at Aprilia for another couple of years. And uh, they've got Ian One on the other bike, but Ian One obviously has his uh, his doping ban hanging over his head. Petrucci, if he wants to stay on the MotoGP grid, the most likely option is probably just to move to Aprilia. Uh, yeah, exactly. And of course, it's really important for uh, Aprilia to have an Italian rider, much more so than for KTM. I mean, KTM 
really don't care as long as uh, uh, what they want is to win. They, they, they're not at all fussy about the nationality of the rider on their bike. Um, whereas Aprilia definitely wants an Italian rider, which was one of the reasons for them to, to, to sign Iannone, apart from the fact that, you know, Iannone is uh, really rather talented, if, uh, shall we say, a little troubled, um, which is why he's in this predicament at the moment. Um, the difficulty is also to know exactly what's going to happen with Iannone uh, uh, because there still hasn't been a date set for his hearing. I actually emailed the cast to ask um, uh, what the status of his appeal was uh, and I've had absolutely no reply from them. So it doesn't seem like they're in a real rush to uh, actually get on with uh, things. There's a, there's a chance that he might they might not even hear his appeal before his uh, uh, you know before his sentence is supposed to finish. But even that's the middle of the season. So yeah, do you keep him? And and David just uh, to follow up what you were saying there, you were showing me the. Uh, the, the dates that the uh, the cast is kind of looking at up until what mid August and Ian O'Neill's name isn't even on that schedule, so it's not going to be any time before then. No, exactly. It's not. It's not going to be before sort of September or something. Well, pro- probably you know late August, early September at the very earliest. Um, and uh, if they do go, I mean, uh, Massimo Rivola said it, uh, uh, said this to an Italian publication. I forget exactly who. I think maybe GP One. So it basically said, you know, he's really worried that uh, 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 that Wada will push for a much longer penalty for um, Ian only to make an example of him. Uh, it's not so that you know if you go to appeal, you either win or you lose, and if you lose, then you just you're stuck with your existing uh, penalty. Um, the cast can choose to impose a much harsher penalty, and they can decide to impose a maximum ban of four years, and that would put Ian only out of action. Uh, basically it basically would end his career this is this is has already probably ended his career but a four-year ban would absolutely end his career so uh, we shall we'll have to wait and see how that goes but i think uh, if petrucci wants to say in moto gp um aprilia is probably his best option um but uh ktm i think ktm would do well to at least to, to, to consider Petrucci because as Steve said he always gives everything uh, you know what you've got um, he has the experience he can help uh, uh, you know give you some of the feedback that, that, that you that you might need to to move the bike in a slightly different direction and um, uh, 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 yeah to me experience is is the key for that second factory Red Bull seat and it depends on how much you uh, rely on um, that seat for input into developing the bike because you can't rely on Brad Binder because you know he's a rookie. But you do have Danny Pedrosa as a test rider who has obviously been fantastic so far. Yeah, and just after actually just getting a message just to say, Dave, that as we record this, Aspagaro has just been confirmed for another two years at Aprilia. So that takes him at least confirmed. And uh, like you said, now the shift will turn to who gets the second seat there. And uh, definitely Petrucci is going to be a contender for that. But Neil, when we look at uh, Ducati's options, obviously there's a lot of rumours about what could happen with the Pramac seat, whether it's Jorge Martin or other riders being linked with that ride for next year. But what way do you see the tea leaves falling for that? Uh, it's a tough one, Stevie. I mean, yeah, Ducati have made... Um, made it known that you, the Pramac's obviously a junior team, 
therefore you would imagine they might look toward um, some kind of young talent. Jorge Martin has obviously been uh, has been mooted as, as moving there. It could well be another um, Moto2 rider. We know that uh, through Andrea De Vizioso, um and indeed uh, Alvaro Bautista, uh, Simone Battistella, the manager of both of those guys, has pretty close ties with Ducati. He's now the manager of Lorenzo Baldassari in Moto2. You have to imagine Baldassari is looking to move up to MotoGP as soon as possible. Um, that would certainly be a name that would be uh, among who they consider. Uh, Enea Bastianini is another quick young Italian who had a really good season in Moto2. was on the podium in Qatar a couple of months ago. Um, so, yeah... Or do they move up Johan Zarco? I mean, I've even seen uh, some rumours saying that uh, Ducati would be keen to move uh, Zarco from uh, Aventia over to over to Pramac. But um, even that seems odd because Zarco's what now, or will be 30 by next year, I think, maybe 31. Um, hasn't exactly set the world alight uh, in his uh, in his first couple of tests with uh, with the Aventia team. Um it's not to say he hasn't done a good job, but, you know, he's still some way off looking to be the Zarko of old. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, and uh, when you mentioned Zarko, Dave, obviously it's now a few years removed from when Zarko was a hot property in the MotoGP paddock. Paco Bagnaia is, like Zarko, a Moto2 world champion. He's only had a year's experience in the class. But what you saw from Paco in Moto2 was an exceptional rider at times. And uh, certainly for Ducati, if they were to cut ties with Paco, it would be a big surprise given, as Neil said, his age compared to Zarco, given the fact that it's always beneficial to have a fast Italian on your bike. And you couldn't imagine Paco not taking it as a slight to be moved from Pramac to, in all likelihood, Avintia. He It would certainly be seen as a big step down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Uh... The thing about Peko, because Ducati put a lot of effort into Banyaya. I mean, um, uh, both in Moto3 on the Mahindra, basically, you know, he um, uh, he passes the Mahindra rule. If you could win on the Mahindra, then you can, then it means you're a good rider because the bike was just slower than the other uh, uh, Moto3 bikes. Um, uh, he dominated his Moto2 uh, season, and he was signed by Ducati before. Even the uh, before even the start of the uh, of that Moto Two season, so Ducati really really wanted him, but he has been, to be honest, perfectly really really rather disappointing. He has you know, not lived up to the hype. He was fast in the first couple of tests, um, and he wasn't after that. Uh, he's he's been you know he sort of struggled for top tens really, which is not at all what he what he should be uh, uh, where he should be racing. He should be doing much much better so uh, i can certainly see um them thinking about or rethinking peko banyaya um but you've got to think that pramac will want a young rider as i said i think i said last time um all the old riders have, have shown that they haven't been able to beat mark marquez so you the, the the next thing you do is try a young rider and hope you uh you know find find the magic bullet yeah, and that's really the case for all of these manufacturers. And for someone like Paco, he's 23 years of age, Neil. And it's a bit like what we were talking about with KTM, where do KTM or Ducati, do they look for a rider inside their 30s, whether it's Davi for KTM or Zarco for Ducati, and think that they're going to be the magic bullet? 
or do they keep looking for those young riders that really stood out? And Paco's title winning season, he did stand out. He had eight or nine wins. He had podiums at, you know, probably three quarters of the rounds that year. So, like, he was a very dominant Moto2 rider. And that was a case of, in his second year doing that, he wasn't, like we've seen from some other Moto2 riders, you know, five, six years in the class, he was straight in, straight on it, and then straight on to a MotoGP bike, really. Mm, yeah, and yeah, judging by his performances in Moto2, you would be inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt. You would probably say, this is a guy it's worth taking a chance on for another year. Um, in these exceptional circumstances in which we're living, um, you perhaps would be more inclined to give someone like Banyaya a uh, a star in the junior classes um, the benefit of the doubt even though his first season really was as David said well below expectations um, do you chuck him out of Ducati after um, one season and uh, what a okay-ish kind of testing campaign I would say probably not um, yeah but then I guess a lot of this a lot of this hinges on Dolphy um, I, I can't see Banyaya losing his seat in Pramac to be honest but um, but yeah I guess stranger things have happened yeah like Paul signing for Repsol Honda Neil <laughs> <laughs> that's true I think a lot of the timing here uh, very much depends on the seats and so um, obviously a factory seat it's much more important to sign riders earlier because you have a uh, you have to have an understanding of what uh, well basically you need someone talented to put on there um, uh, like Tech 3 Pramac can afford to take a little bit longer to start to assess uh, riders so I don't think I'd, like I don't expect um, an announcement for either Tech 3 at KTM or uh, Pramac Ducati until maybe August or September once there has been some, ra or some racing and uh, factories have had a chance to actually assess what the, uh, you know, what the Moto 2 riders are like, um, how they've, uh, uh, especially how they've handled lockdown, I think. I think that's also going to be really important uh, to see how they've grown as, as riders, how they've, uh, uh, how they've kept fit, how they've managed to motivate themselves because that's uh, that that tells something about their character and the way that they can handle handle themselves uh, uh, in the intense pressure of MotoGP. Yeah, and I think that covers most of the rumors that we're hearing in and around the MotoGP paddock, David and Neil. So thanks for joining us again on the Paddock Pass podcast, David. Until next week on the show, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Steve. No doubt you'll be back on your bicycle cycling away for the next six days. And Neil, no doubt you'll be sitting in a coffee shop just basking in all that uh, Catalonia has to offer for you and thinking that in less than 48 hours as we record this, football will be back in Spain and uh, life will be back to normal with everyone focusing on Barcelona and Real Madrid and most importantly, the Seville Derby on Thursday night. Yeah, exactly, Steve. I can tell you with uh, some authority that a beer never tastes as good as it does on a terrace after a three-month absence of being able to do so. That is, uh, that's the sweet spot right there. Yeah, it's a good thing that those beers cost 11 quid because they were <laughs> just the best beer you've ever had, Neil. Um, so thanks for joining us again this week, guys. And uh, until next week, we just want to say a big thank you to everyone for listening to the show. And once again, a big thank you to everyone that's 
been uh, able to support the Paddock Pass podcast on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to have a Patreon only question and answer show coming in the next couple of weeks before the MotoGP season resumes. So if you want to support the podcast, you'll be able to have your questions answered. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. You can find us on Facebook as well with Paddock Pass Podcast. And uh, you can follow us and you can like and subscribe to us on any podcast service. So whether it's iTunes or Spotify or anything else, you're able to find us on that. So until next week, just want to say thanks for listening and uh, keep yourselves up to date on uh, what you can find out on the silly season with David at Moto Matters and also with Neil at Neil Morrison 87 on Twitter. So thanks for joining us.